Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello, and welcome again to the Hobcast Book Show, show number 53. Thanks for joining us. We're delighted to have you aboard. And this week, our guest is Dan Morgan, who is best known, I think, not just as an author as Morgan Green, but also as the creator of the Grindstone Literary Prize, which has, over the last five years, really established itself as one of the ways of finding new talent in the industry. And in fact, one of our authors was longlisted for the prize Indeed, a yeah. couple of years ago. Anthony so. Dunford was, was, was longlisted. So that is a, a brilliant interview. In fact, we're going to split it in two. We're going to have it next week as well. Because we just couldn't stop talking, could we? No, we couldn't. And, well, <laughs> no surprise there. But I think the, the, the nature of this interview is that essentially we are stripping away some of the myths that have developed around the indie scene and and I think it's an honest appraisal of how tough it is, the marketplace, at the moment. I think what's interesting is that, um, as Morgan Green, Dan has had success, but he doesn't just say, oh, you know, I did this and this and this and it worked. He talks very, he's very grounded, very realistically about how he did that. Yeah. And, and the future as well. Absolutely. We talk a lot about the future, but that possibly is going to be more in part two. Yeah. Which will be next week's. But anyway, so let's talk to... Uh, Dan Morgan a little later. Let's introduce ourselves as we normally do, customarily. Uh, my name is Adrian Hobart. And my name is Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books. And Hobeck Books is a UK independent small publisher of the following genres. Suspense. Thrillers. Mystery. And crime. You got it right. I did. Well done. Well, that's because... We spent quite a chunk of our Saturday <laughs> at Waterstones in Manchester, which is the biggest Waterstones in the north of the UK. And uh, we were, well, we set ourselves a task. Uh, perhaps you'd explain what your challenge was. Yeah, so um, we often, well, quite often when we go to Waterstones, we just buy books. But we decided to make this a little bit more productive for Hobeck. And uh, you said to me, oh, we should look at covers and take some photos of covers that we like in our genres. And I said, I think we should do it independently, not talk to each other. Each take five photos in the following genres. Psychological thrillers. We don't need to go through Okay. <laughs> okay, it was psychological thrillers, crime, um, cosy crime, and um, I think that was it, wasn't it? Historical. Historical, yes. And so... We did. We had half an hour each, and we went off and think yeah, and we next. came. Some of, some of them were the same, and others were different. And I think some stylistic uh, themes emerged. But I mean, boy, oh boy, so much of what we saw is, you know, that there are certain tropes on covers that appear all the time. I mean, it's almost impossible now to have a thriller that doesn't have. A silhouette disappearing into a background of a cityscape or a landscape, or I mean, it's just that's the way it is. Indeed, psychological thrillers, awful lot of them have women in red coats. 
if not or, that, an eye poking out through uh, a keyhole or, or a blind. Letter, yeah, blinds or whatever. <laughs> so look, there's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of things that say scream what type of book it is, and that's an important thing to know because that's the game. If you're looking at Amazon and you're looking for, oh, I've just finished so and so, I really fancy something uh, like that. If the cover, that little thumbnail on Amazon, you know, hints that it's the same sort of thing, more likely to get the purchase. But here's an interesting thought, because I think that is that is true for online. When you're looking online, you you do you're drawn to familiar, the familiar cover. But when you're in the bookshop, do you have the same um, kind of response? Because I I yesterday I kept my eye was drawn towards things that were just slightly different. Maybe yeah. there's a relationship with the trends, but they were sort of just slightly off tangent. You, you had a lot of graphical uh, covers. In your, you know, sort of potpourri of, of photographs. Well, you see, that's interesting, interesting to me because I didn't realise that I was naturally drawn to the more uh, artistic graphic covers until I did this exercise yesterday. Mm. But none of mine had photographs, I don't think. Maybe one or two out of the... Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, was, I was looking to find ones that perhaps... Um, I, I suppose I was looking for some, some typical covers i was taking mm. records of those so that we've got some idea of what everyone else is doing and i think that we also you know i found some one or two graphical ones but i was also looking for stuff that that uh, kind of resonated with our existing titles yeah so yeah it was a useful exercise it really was and uh you know it's always good to go to manchester oh i love it i i mean i could spend hours in that um waterstones <laughs> which we did which we did yeah. we did indeed well, let's get into some news. And the first thing we wanted to talk about made my blood boil. Well, our collective blood. Yeah. Even though it's one of those things, isn't it? It's shocking, but not surprising. No, it isn't. It isn't. Okay. You may remember, those of you who follow music will remember the Paola scandal of the, I think it was the 50s and 60s, which is where record companies used to pay people to go in and buy records and so get them up the charts. And this was banned. It was a big, you know, the FBI investigated, all sorts of things went on. Was but, this just in America then? Yeah, well, it was a big thing in America. So basically you were gaming the system by buying books. And not that many months ago, we discussed this on the programme. Uh, Mark Dawson, uh, who is a doyen of the indie scene and uh, the creator of the self-publishing formula and show, um, also attracted a lot of negative press when he went, uh, he wanted to uh, get a number of copies over to America. He went into a shop which was registered on one of the, you know, had a terminal where basically Nielsen Bookscan would pick up the the, um, and the and the Sunday Times list, would see the sales. And so he bought 400 copies of his own book in a shop and then arranged to send them out to the States. But in the process, got into the top 10. Well, it's a good job it wasn't in the shop we're about to talk about. <laughs> And he was, uh, when he said that this is what he'd done, he was very open about it. It caused a huge uproar and he was removed from those lists. Yeah. They... Uh, and, it, it, you know, it has done his reputation no good whatsoever. However, he argued that, look, I was going to, the best way for me to source these books, to get them over to the States was to buy them in person. Well, I don't necessarily buy that because you can get author copies for a lot less. <laughs> but that's what he did. And uh, it caused him a lot of grief. Now, this is going. This is on an altogether different level, and I think that 
for those of you who have seen this article, you'll be blood will be boiling too. But in the Guardian this week, there was an article which revealed that a a former employee of WH Smith went on social media this week. This guy's called Barry Pierce, and he revealed that when Richard Osman's Thursday you know, Murder Club, Thursday Murder Club, you know, I was going to say. Um, Runaway smash success, the best, <laughs> most successful book of the year. Uh, you know, seven figure sales, all that sort of thing. Loads of accolades uh, came out. The uh, he was told when they were working at W. H. Smiths that it had to be in the you know because if you see the displays, you know they have the top whatever number of books, fifty, seventy five, whatever it is, like Wall was used to. It had to be in number one. No questions asked. That book was going in the number one slot on the shelves. And why? Because Penguin Random House had paid W.H. Smiths for the privilege of having that slot. Now, if that isn't payola on a major scale... It's exactly the same. It is exactly the same. Now, we've always known, and we've discussed this on the show, no one really in the traditional industry talks about this, but you know, in Waterstones, for instance, those tables which have the little stacks of, of books in a certain genre or you know new releases or recommended books or whatever publishers pay for the privilege of being there yeah and the richard and judy book club again That's same thing not that richard and judy love your book no you're paying for that slot mm. it's a massive sales generator but to find out that it's possible to go to wh smiths and pay to be the number one book for week on end no matter how many books are actually shifted, is really beyond scandalous. Now, I don't, I don't begrudge Richard what he's done. No, I, I don't doubt that he would have been number one naturally. Actually, yeah, no, I, I agree. But for Penguin, I mean, Penguin Random House paid him a seven-figure sum to get the book and the current one, and I think it was the three-book deal. And one of the ways that they've ensured that it was successful was to pay for it to be number one, regardless of whether it was. And I know that James Daunt, who is the CEO of Waterstones and indeed Barnes & Noble and indeed Daunt Books, his own independent <laughs> chain, um, decided that when, Waters- when he took over at Waterstones, they would no longer allow publishers to buy their slot. Mm. Um, which he stopped it, yeah. But, you know, the whole of the credibility of the charts, you have to now question it. And while Mark Dawson tried desperately to run with the big boys and did it in a certain way, the fact that the big boys can just buy themselves the number one slot in, a, in you know, the number one um, book retailer in the country in the sense that W.H. Smith reaches high streets that Waterstones don't go to, mm. I think is absolutely scandalous. It is. And it's just the fact that it's regarded as, well, I can't remember the phrase I use now, sort of a known secret. I mean, yes, I mean, we, we that's true, but it doesn't make it any less evil. Well, it, it makes you wonder whether this, any of this is worth it, if that's how it works. Well, we couldn't pay to have of a book number one of in the Blitzmith. No, absolutely not. You know, the, the fact is that, you know, there are still mysteries around how books get to the top 100 in, in Amazon, but I'm sure people aren't buying those slots. It's just, you know, as we've discovered in, and you'll hear in the interviews that's coming over the next two weeks, you know, a lot of retailers, uh, publishers having to spend almost a loss 
to get high up in the Amazon rankings and then hope that Amazon's promotion of those books will generate the profit. Mm. Um, but that's uh, money makes the world go round. Well, it, it does rather, um, but it makes it. You know, I just <laughs> I feel really angry about this. Anyway, so Mr. Pierce, um, Barry Pierce, says further that. Um, Often our area manager would come in and rearrange the charts so certain books would appear higher. Things <laughs> branch of W. Smith. And, um, I mean, Nielsen Bookscan collects data from 6,500 retailers across mm. the UK. So, fair enough. That's a m- much truer reflection. And, indeed, you know, look, that Thursday Murder Club has been... Yeah, so the bookseller charts that we look at, that comes from the Nielsen yeah, Book data. Yeah, that has been up there for, for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. It's still in the top ten. It's not number one at the moment. It's a pinch of nom, I think, is number one at the moment. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't even know what a nom is. It's a it's a it's a brand of um, cookbooks. By, oh, okay. Uh, a couple of people who write them. Well, and we don't have a copy, do we? No, we don't. We don't have a pinch of nom. I just think it's a stupid title, so I, I won't <laughs> buy one. I'd rather buy it from a chef I respect, um, like Marcus Waring. Um, but uh, no, it's it's. I just I, I'm not surprised. I'm still horrified. Yeah, exactly. Shocked, but not surprising. <laughs> you know, and I just think this is this is the nature of what we're trying to break into as an independent publisher. We don't, we can't run with the big boys. But the fact is, we can't get our books into bricks and mortar stores without really making face to face contact with the individual managers of certain branches. Mm. That's really how it works uh, for for indies. And it was interesting. We listened to an interview yesterday as we were driving to Manchester with the king of the indie scene, Jasper Joffe, in the UK at least, and his publishing house is phenomenal. Uh, And he hasn't tried to get his books into bookshops yet because it's just too much of an investment And Mm. in terms of, you know, he doesn't want to play that game just yet. In the longer term he does, but his success over the last seven years is based around e-books. And not even audio books. I mean, he was saying that, you know, he... third. He uses third-party suppliers to to get his books, get their books turned into ebooks like Tantor or WF House or any of those other producers. Uh, he can't afford to do it ourselves. Now we do do our own audiobooks in-house, and it is an expensive process. And I would argue, so far the returns don't suggest that that was a worthwhile investment just yet. But you've got to look at it over the. T- I mean, the thing with audiobooks is that once it's made, it will always create a it's a, sort of, it's a study it, it's a passive income mm. and they're worth doing because you, you look credible if you have a third format and also it's where your skill lies yeah but it's, so. I thought it was very interesting that he said look I'm not going in the paperback game because I'm not going to pay retailers to, to feature the books yeah I mean he basically he doesn't want to get involved in that whole that the whole system and he and yet, his, some of his authors are winning awards or being nominated alongside the big names in the crime scene. Yeah, um, and he's got what he said: nearly a hundred authors, hundreds and hundreds of books out there, selling huge numbers. Three million books sold last year, mm. um, and he's still not playing the bricks and mortar game, which no. was a bit of a wake up call to us because we'd love to we, play that. We do we try. Have tried. We do try. Yeah. It's a lot of effort, and it, it, we've been successful on a, a number of occasions, but mostly independent bookshops, the odd Waterstones. Yep, but yep. certainly not W. H. Smiths. No, we're not going to go there, especially if they're doing this sort of thing. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that, you know, 
And W. Smiths have had their ups and downs over the years, but they've just paid their CEO £550,000 bonus. Oh, he's happy then, or she? She, she. <laughs> um, and yeah, I mean, they are sort of, they are remarkable in the sense that they have survived, but a bit like Boots. But do you know what about W. Smiths? The shops are really tatty. They are tatty. They they are tatty. And, uh, you know, the only one I would say that you would argue is not tatty is the one at Euston Station where they have a specific paperback uh, shop. They do have those at uh, lots of airports and Right, well, they're quite classy. They? They're classy. But the actual general retail stores are... I mean, they've made a lot of money selling um, consumable electronics in terms of, like, you know, your, your iPhone cables and your headphones and things like that. Uh, right. That's where the, the, the tilt has come and where the money's come in from. And they do run very good sections of that. And the very expensive motorway service station shops. Oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Off the scale. I mean, it's a bit like Boots. You go to Boots and you can, you're can you paying the premium rate unless it's a buy, buy one, get one free deal. Uh, a perma, buy one, get one I free mean, deal it, in Boots. It's so expensive. Anyway, look, we that, we discussed this at, at great length. We said we were going to be shorter this week, but well, we now know the podcast has got the interviews shorter because we're splitting it. So. Yes, yes, we, we've got we've we earned ourselves a little, a, little, bit more. a little bit more time. Okay, let's move off that subject and uh, let the the audience's blood boil with us. <laughs> I can uh, hear the you, bubbles. Uh, yeah, absolutely. What have you got? Um, uh, so we spoke a while ago about the um, proposed change in UK copyright law, which would mean. Um, Companies overseas will be able to uh, use our use a UK copyright to produce cheaper versions of books, yeah. and they would then be sold back into the UK, undermining um, the whole industry, the whole everything. And the really good news—I don't know how permanent it is—but the really good news is the government has decided not to change the copyright exhaustion laws. That's what they're called. Um, after a consultation with the uh, lead leaders in the publishing industry, so. Basically, it's a okay. good story of success. Well, who, is it? Can I grab the paperwork just a second and have a quick look at it? I'll scan it as I go. But I'm interested to know. Um, presumably, this. Okay, so this was um, the Intellectual Property Office. Yes. Who who launched this thing? So I, I don't know how much of a relationship that is with the Department of Culture, Media, and Sport, <laughs> DCMS for short. Um, but you know, this week I, I can't let it go without mentioning it. So Nadine Doris is the culture secretary and a, a successful published author, MP for uh, Mid Bedfordshire, I think it is. Uh, basically, she is Robert Dawes's MP. I was about to ask that. And is that Adam Robert Croft. Dawes, right? Um, yeah, Alison Morgan. No, her, her constituency office is in Ampthill, where where Robert lives. Oh, okay. Anyway, Nadine Doris has this week launched essentially an all-out assault on the BBC um, by freezing the license fee for the next two years, claiming that you know the cost of living crisis means that it has to freeze, which means that the BBC now say that they're going to be £245 million worse off over the next two years. And then she's also announced that they're going to end the licence fee in 2027. Crikey. Um, which has obviously upset a lot of people, particularly in the creative industries. Anyway, I mean, it's it was pretty brazen. I mean, her speech in the her announcement in the... Uh, House of Commons was an absolute, I was going to use a rude word, but anyway, it was a complete car crash. Um, and you do wonder whether this government's going to be around long enough, frankly. Probably not, actually. <laughs> to be able to push this through. But I think, you know, while a lot of people, you know, don't like the, the fact that, you know, it's a tax that is, you know, the licence fee, £159, uh, is charged for everybody, no matter who uses it and how much they use it and all that sort of thing. 
the fact is that it does have an enormous gravitational pull for the rest of the creative industries in this country. Yeah. And take that away, you lose a lot. Uh, that is not for me. To, I mean, I have criticised the BBC and some of the things they do and and certainly some of the political posturing they've done recently and their approach to um, handling people like myself was appalling. You know, basically white middle-aged blokes. <laughs> Get out. Um, but that had, that said, I would defend the license, certainly the principle of the license fee, and indeed what it achieves for Britain. Well, it, the British culture would be would change beyond recognition without yeah. the BBC. I mean, Absolutely. sounds quite dramatic, but actually, no, I think it's true. <laughs> as somebody once wisely said, "It it's the glue that binds this country." Yeah, um, along with the and NHS. it has reach over the world. It does, and I work for that element of yeah. it, the World Service. I used to listen to uh, the BBC when I was in Japan because it was my little, you know, nugget of. Home. Yeah, and, and you know, actually, in many ways, um, I mean, the government did a lot of damage in George Osborne's time because when he took over in 2010, they made the World Service uh, license fee paid. And before that, it was paid by the Foreign Office because it was an, an arm of our foreign policy. And then they, so basically, British license fee payers are paying for a service that benefits the rest of the world. Um, and it was came from direct taxation before that it was a you know a grant from the foreign office yeah and so the way that the foreign office were able to take their lump of cuts from um when you know when austerity came in was to uh force the license fee payers to pay for the world service so therefore there's 250 million saved and they also cut the british council which they're continuing to do at the moment which again has a you know soft power it's something we do very well in this country. We do, indeed. Yes, we and, do. You know, you lose that with with you know, and that goodwill that it creates. Um, it and is, opportunities as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, look, going around in circles. But basically, this is good news. Um, it was the craziest idea, and I think it's ironic because we've signed up for the London Book Fair this week, and that is being held in April, at the beginning of April, at Olympia in London, and we are sort of now sitting down and carefully plotting what we're going to get out of that um, we are. event. The last time we went, so much has changed, so it's, it's going to be a very different week, week well, for us. Well, we've got something to offer. <laughs> we were learning about how the industry works when we went last time, and now we have something to go around and market um, to rights buyers. But the, the, the thing I was going to say is that when you sign up for it, you have to go through these massive hoops. It's almost a questionnaire. <laughs> about your export status and about how the Department of Trade and Industry or whatever they're called nowadays um, can help you sell more British products abroad. And then at the same time, another arm of government, the international, the um, Intellectual Property Office, were trying to take away basically the power of those rights. So, mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense. But uh, OK, so there's a halt for now. It was stupid incredibly stupid yes so let's hope it's a permanent halt <laughs> yeah let's hope so what's your final story this week so this story um i came across in the middle of the week and um it's interesting because we, we were talking about uh, we've been talking a lot about future trends and what people like to read and trying to predict what people are going to want to read well the bookseller asked a whole bunch of literary agents what they thought so because they are sort of you know the the the, the trends 
go through the agents because they're the ones who pick things up, send to publishers, and mm-hmm. um, so that's, they're sort of like the gatekeepers, aren't they? So um, apparently, they think we, we're going to have more joy in 2022. Yeah, in the books that get picked up. So people, they say, they're saying people are fed up of uh, the grit. They're fed up of the dystopia. They don't want to be depressed. They want to be. They want to have hope and optimism because they've had a long period of, of sort of living a fairly dull life because they've been stuck at home or they've been unable to go into mm. the office or haven't been able to travel very much. So they want to read. They want a bit of escapism. Yeah, and cosy crime as well. Apparently, on the up again. It is. Yeah, and Rich Osman is a good example of. Well, things like Janice Hallett, yeah. Richard Osman. There's, there's a there's lot lots, of there's lots out sort there. Sort of thinky cozy crime, I'd call it intellectual cozy crime, that's doing very well. Yeah, intelligent cozy crime. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. So joy. Um, right. That's a, a so war, we war. need to inject a bit more joy into our. Yeah, we've got some pretty dark stuff out there, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know we'll continue to publish that. But you know we. Oh well, we do have Ms. Morgan. She has a lot of joy in yeah, her books. Amy Morgan. Um, Ali is uh, is, a, is yeah. There's much joy there, you know, and you know, tongue in cheek humor and stuff. Um, it's great. And in fact, she's just set up um, a Twitter account for the Quirks. So if you want to follow what the Quirks do every day, What's it check called? out the Quirk Files, the, the Quirky quir- Files. Sorry, quirky the Quirky Files. files. So, yeah, no, it's very funny. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're hopeful that will <laughs> will uh, launch there. Uh, the world of the Quirks. Well, I've been following it, and she, it's the, it's very funny. Pedro is um, making me laugh every day. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's yeah, and so the emphasis on the job, well, look, I tell you what, every time I pick up the bookseller, it's always Fern Cotton does this, you know, it's like another one of her positive mindset books and, you know, but she just wants me to, well, look, I, this week I had some um, major surgery. Um, oh, you're my, not feeling the joy then, no, are I'm you? No, I'm in great pain. I'm in great pain. Basically, I don't wish to, you know, those of a nervous disposition listen away, but basically I had a, uh, a very considerably broken tooth that should give me loads of infections for last year. But my dentist, reluctantly, because he didn't want to really do the operation, uh, finally got the, the thing out. And it was uh, an hour of my life. I don't want to repeat, but I'm still feeling the effects. I'm getting the stitches out tomorrow. Um, but it was hugely unpleasant. Do you know on that note, we ought to talk to Dan? We ought to. Uh, that's more positive. <laughs> so There was a lot of joy talking to yeah, Dan. Yeah, Dan Morgan. Um, writes as Morgan Green and has in the past written sci-fi books and, and fantasy novels but went into the crime fiction market and he's a trained writer in the sense that he's a copywriter by day but also he has uh, a degree in uh, in, in uh, literature um, and narrative structure and things like that mm. from Swansea University. He knows what he's doing. But he's up sticks in the last few months. Um, Dan has moved over with his partner to Canada from the Brecon Breacons to the wilds of Western Canada, which sounds extraordinary. Oh, yes. So, yes, he has lots of um, new wildlife to <laughs> get to know. Umpteen varieties of bear. Come there all in. sorts, wasn't yeah, there? Wolves and, and, yeah, and... coyotes and all sorts. So it's quite, quite, especially for the dog, it's quite alarming. But anyway, uh, so Dan's made this big move. He is also the creator of the Grindstone Literary Prize, which, as I say, Anthony Dunford was nominated for. That's how we came across Dan. Absolutely. And he is one of the, um, he has a podcast as well, the Grindstone podcast, which is on hold at the moment. But nonetheless, um, 
he has a great deal of knowledge, knows a lot of people in the industry, a lot of agents, and uh, spoken to a lot of people, and has got his finger on the pulse of what's really going on in the indie world. Um, there are plenty of people talking it up, mm. but the cold reality is that it's a tough world if you're trying to follow that. Not everybody is as successful as some of the other people we've spoken to, like Simon McLeave or Jason Dalglish. Uh, uh, it, it's a tough, tough road, as we discover. And we talk in this coruscatingly honest interview with Dan Morgan. Well, it's a great pleasure uh, to uh, bring to the microphone from Canada. This is very exciting. I know, we're talking to Canada this is an today. international uh, interview with Dan Morgan. And it's such a pleasure to speak to you again because you've, we've been on your podcast and now you're on ours. Yes, yeah. Um, I mean, you've been on it in spirit, I suppose, but it hasn't quite come out yet. Uh, but I'm sure we'll get to why that is. But uh, yes, yeah, it's, it's lovely to kind of reverse the tables and yeah, join you guys on the podcast. Well, thank you for joining us. And first of all, I think, you know, we just got to fill in the context. Why are you in Canada? What prompted the move? And, um, you know, you've already, before we spoke, we were just discussing what it's like there at this time of year. It was extraordinary. So t- fill us in on the, on the move. Um, <clears throat> it's nothing really um, especially exciting, I don't think. We uh, just come from a very small town in Wales and uh, spent my whole life there. Um, my family built their lives there. They built businesses there. And I never went to university and didn't go away from home and do any of that kind of thing. So we sort of, my partner and I, got to our you know, sort of late 20s and we just thought, well, you know, we need to do something. We need to go somewhere. It's a big old world out there just to kind of, you know, stay in the, the town that you were born in. So, yeah, we, we kind of just searched around for where we thought might be a kind of a good fit for us. Um, and it sort of came down to three places and it was America, Canada and New Zealand. New Zealand is just too far away. It's too hard to get back to, you know, if something kind of happens and you need to get back to see family. So that kind of discounted that for us. And then, yeah, you know, America has privatized healthcare and, you know, very kind of liberal gun laws and that kind of thing. So, it, you know, it didn't really fit with kind of what we, I don't know, I suppose it come to uh, get used to in the UK. So that kind of just left Canada. Um, and uh, yeah, we uh, we started the process. It took a little while and then, we had a little sort of break with the visas, I guess, and we had an opportunity and we just kind of jumped on it. So we planned to go for about two years. And then from kind of uh, that little chance that we had with a visa to leaving was about three months. So it kind of was in the very distance for a long time. And then just suddenly it was, okay, well, we've applied for this. We've booked flights. We better look for somewhere to live. And, uh, <laughs> Stop and that packing. was pretty much it. You know, we, uh, we started the ball rolling in kind of... Um, you know, just as July was turning into August and we arrived here at the beginning of November. So it was very, uh, yeah, a roller coaster, um, pretty much. Yeah, yeah that, that is quick. Do you feel like you've settled in yet or, you know, have you laid down some roots? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely taken a while. It's definitely been a culture shock. Um, luckily, we had some friends in town that I uh, work with in kind of one of my other jobs. So it was nice that we had a kind of sort of point of contact here, somebody that we could... Uh, you know, have to show us the ropes really and warn us kind of where to go and not to go um, on account of the deadly, deadly wildlife, which we've already kind of discussed. But um, yeah, it was, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely taken a while um, to adjust. And uh, I think we're finally getting the hang of it now. 
Yeah, I mean, I, we did discuss about the Desi wildlife, but I think we should um, talk about it on air as well. Because so you said to us just before we started recording that you had paw prints one morning recently. What were those paw prints? Uh, they were paw prints of a black bear. So uh, <laughs> yeah, about, about about a week after we kind of uh, arrived, had a little dusting of snow, and um, we were just sitting in the living room, and then all of a sudden, uh, the kind of security light outside the door came on, and the dog sort of jumped up from his kind of sleep because uh, we brought our dog with us and kind of ran to the window and started barking. We thought, oh gosh, what's that? So we kind of stuck our head outside the door, um, looked around, nothing out there, looked down and then there were these kind of paw prints on the deck. And um, and first we thought, oh, you know, is that a cat or is it a stray dog or, you know, what is it? But bear prints look very distinct if you've never seen one. They've got quite a, quite a wide pad and then yeah. four kind of long fingers and long claws that kind of stick out. So took a little kind of second to realize what that was. And I was like, well, that's either a very big kind of misshapen dog. Or a bear. <laughs> so, um, you don't get many bears in Wales, do you? No, we don't. No. Not, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thankfully, no. But um, and it was really funny then because we text our landlord saying like, hey, you know, there's a bear about, you know, if you're going to put the dog up for a week because he lives sort of next door to us. Um, just watch out. And he went, oh, yeah, that's the that's the neighborhood bear. He uh, he usually comes to our house because we have a walnut tree and he likes to eat the walnuts. So it's a very, very kind of like everybody who lives here has seen the bear. You know, this bear that's just roaming around the streets pretty much. I love that, though. I would love to have a neighborhood bear. I'm not sure Aki would. <laughs> that's yeah, our cat, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um... She'd probably give the bear a bit of a run for his money, actually, I yeah, think. Maybe. Yeah. yeah, she's nearly as big as one now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, that's uh, fantastic yeah i mean it's like, it's like an episode, really... living an episode of northern lights or something isn't i it? used to love that show <laughs> <laughs> it's um yeah it's definitely a change of pace from uh from kind of rural as we said um predator free wales so, so. Mm. But, although i spent yeah. some time in urban wales uh i did a year at cardiff and ah, if i remember rightly <laughs> exactly. he, Go, going downtown on a Saturday night was full of wildlife. My son has applied to Cardiff. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually okay. love Cardiff. Cardiff's a great. Oh, town. I love it too. Um, we got lots of friends who live there. So um, yeah, it's brilliant. Well, it, you know, it was it was a great year. Um, you know, we'd been to I've been to Exeter with with obviously Rebecca and um, but a year in Cardiff was. I mean, everything is there. That's the thing about Cardiff. It is within walking distance of absolutely anything you could ever want. Um, and and you know and it's got a great vibe so no that's wonderful so the big move to canada but alongside that the career has got to carry on or the careers as you mentioned before you know there's yeah. the day job but also the writing as uh, morgan green so um, how's that transition gone i mean is, is it, i mean all of that great rush whoops i beg your pardon knocking my microphone here great rush to uh to, to the western side of canada uh must have interrupted the flow a bit um yeah i suppose it was um i mean i'm 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 very much in favor of kind of you know you sit down you write you you kind of get into a rhythm uh, and that's kind of what struck me when you guys interviewed simon mcleave and he said you know like he just sits mm. down every day and kind of aims for three thousand words and then just you know every few months you've got a new novel and that's you know that does trivialize it a little bit, but that's pretty much kind of, you know, if you, if you just commit to the idea of sitting down and writing, you know, so much every day, even if it's just a little bit or a lot, you know, it just kind of gets done. And uh, after the third book in the series came out at the end of October, 
um, I actually had already written the manuscript for the next one by that point. So I had a little bit of a, you know, I, I kind of put the hammer down a little bit and pushed to get the fourth one finished um, to give myself a little bit of kind of time because I knew that the move would upset it. And I was also sort of floating the manuscript around uh, to some kind of agents and things that I'm, uh, I was in contact with just to kind of see, you know, what the possibilities were, you know, um, beyond yeah. Amazon because as, as fantastic as Amazon is for selling Kindle books, the kind of the options for doing other things are, you know, limited. So it's, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a lot of juggling and a lot of kind of just trying to, trying to keep some plates spinning, I think, through all of that kind of move. But, um, yeah, hopefully we've come out the other side now not too, uh, you know, disheveled and sleep deprived. They've been very successful, The uh, your books. The Jamie Johansson is your main character, and they're... Uh, I mean, how would you describe them? Scandy crime is something I've seen sort of banded about. Is that a, a good description or in the uh, fullest yeah, sense? Yeah. There's a, um, I think the term kind of Brit Noir is sort of uh, thrown around a little bit. And I think that's just pretty much kind of been coined by Will Dean first with his sort of Tuva Moodison series. And then kind of Maria Adolfson, who writes the Doggerland series, which is yeah. on like a fictional island between Scotland and Norway. Um, she's kind of in that zone and I guess I am as well now and it's either kind of British writers writing Swedish set novels or kind of Scandinavian themed novels or vice versa really um, so yeah I guess it's a an emerging niche I suppose you know I think in, in this kind of uh, genre where everybody's looking for their own new spin on things looking for their own kind of way into what's already a very rich kind of uh, you know, market space, I suppose. Um, you've got to just look for something slightly different, I think, and and that's always going to breed these new kind of interesting niches. What do you think is the appeal of that part of the world, though, for um, crime novels? Because I'm intrigued, actually. It's uh, <laughs> it's very dark, and it's very cold, and it's very bleak. <laughs> so, I mean, interestingly, Sweden has some very kind of um, bleak statistics in terms of kind of... Um, very high suicide rates and yes. high kind of rates of alcoholism just because it's dark and cold and unforgiving. And for me, it's always been the kind of, I, I love the cold weather. I hate the warm weather. And, you know, and, and I know that many people kind of gravitate towards setting kind of novels in sunny, warm places and kind of, you know, lots of murders and kidnappings and things going on on Greek islands and that kind of thing. And for me, I don't know, the cold kind of dark landscape kind of lends itself to crime and I always try and see how I can you know utilize the landscape as a kind of character in itself and I think that's one of the kind of defining elements of sort of Scandi Noir especially is the setting is as much a villain as the villain themselves so it's uh you know the the heroes are always battling the elements as well as the came the the case or the crime you know I think that's really interesting, actually, that, yeah, using the, the landscape and the climate as a character. We talked about this before, that place is such an important part of a story that actually is like another character. I think that's that's true. I mean, Simon McCleave is obviously lent heavily on the, the Snowdonian setting for his books, the D.I. Ruth Hunter ones. Um, and a number of authors, I mean, you know, obviously the... Uh, the Vera books um, being set up in Shetland as well. I mean, but there is something about the mindset of people who live in that landscape, isn't it? They're quite deep thinkers, but they're also they've got a dark edge to them, haven't they? 
because <laughs> that's because when everybody's wrapped up in scarves and hoods you can't kind of see what they really look like you don't you know you can't read their face you know everything's very uh, <laughs> that's very... so true yeah everybody look did you see the sort of the eyes but the eyes are always piercingly blue and yeah exactly <laughs> i think you know a big part of it for me was I wrote the kind of the prequel trilogy first, uh, set that in London, realised that, you know, kind of not being a London native and not kind of having that really authentic kind of history of working in law enforcement and having that intrinsic knowledge, I think, you know, adds such an indispensable sense of authenticity to so many kind of novels. Um, I was kind of just looking further afield for where I could set it that would be kind of unique and that would have that kind of you know, that draw, if I didn't have that sense of, okay, well, I've been a police officer, I've been a forensic kind of, you know, officer for X amount of years, and I'm bringing that kind of authenticity and that that edge to my novels, you know, what can I bring that was my kind of USP, my unique selling point, and I don't know if you've ever been to Brecon, but it's not exactly very, uh, you know, it's not, it's not as... Um, grand and jagged and kind of dramatic as, as Snowdonia, you know, you drive through North Wales and, you know, it, it feels ancient, it feels kind of powerful and unforgiving, you know, and, and I think that that's kind of what really draws people, I think, to uh, Simon's series is is how interesting that setting is. And for me, it was just a case of, okay, what corner of, you know, the UK could I put my work in that I know well that I can really kind of bring you know, a sense of excitement and, and, and a feeling of place to, um, and, you know, every, every interesting place, you know, the Highlands, Snowdonia, the Black Country, you know, the Yorkshire Dales, everything has just been written and written and written and written. So, yeah, I, um, luckily I work for a company uh, that's based out of Sweden and they, uh, you know, and I, and I called on uh, the kind of the colleagues that I worked with and I said, hey, can you, can you help me out with, the kind of the research and the translations and just making sure this kind of feels authentic. So yeah. I basically sort of subcontracted my, um, you know, my <laughs> travels, I guess, to my coworkers and, uh, and had them kind of advise on Angel Maker. And I took a punt at the end of the day. That's all you can do. You know, you, you make an assumption in this game about what you think people might think is interesting. And then, you know, you write a hundred thousand words about it and cross your fingers. <laughs> I like that. No, I mean, and it's clearly resonated because you got three thousand ratings for that book uh, on Amazon, at least in the UK Kindle store. So that's that's fantastic. So, um, I mean, the, the the corollary is, I mean, clearly you took a punt and it worked. People mm. really love the books and they continue to read them as great read through. Um, again, judging by the number of ratings. So, um, has that success surprised you, or did you do all the things that? you know you could do to make it that success um yeah i mean it, it certainly surprised me it uh it still does surprise me every day you know that that you know people are reading something that i've written i spend a lot of time and you know a decade pretty much just writing novels that nobody ever wanted to read um so to kind of put something out that people do enjoy reading i find very um very humbling more than anything and and i'm always very keen to kind of look at what I've done and then kind of do something different. And, you know, I, I really don't want to write, you know, a, a series of novels that feels kind of interchangeable or that, you know, somebody can kind of jump in, you know, at book seven, nine, 12 in a series and feel like they've missed nothing. You know, I really want to make mm. sure that each book has its own kind of very distinct, um, story but also that it does something for the characters and you know and Jamie if you kind of hopefully read the very first one through to this one the kind of 
the difference of who she is as a person for me is kind of what allows or kind of keeps it fresh for me, you know? So it's a case of I'm always trying to do better. I'm always trying to raise that bar. Um, and it, and it always kind of surprises me that, you know, people that that resonates with people as well. And it's, it's very tough to, uh, you know, to keep that going, I think, but, uh, you know, it, I think, for me, I just come into with this mindset of never, you know, never just allowing myself to put out another novel without really trying hard. If that makes sense? Mm. Yeah, I do. I do think people like that because they they like to to they like to have the familiarity of a character that they followed, but they also like those little jolts and shocks of something different happening to them or some challenge for them that you know is good for the character. Yeah, I think that's that. I mean, there are two schools of philosophy on this, aren't there? Mm. I mean, if you think about. You know, repeat series. I mean, James Bond until this last one. Spoiler alert: um, the ending's pretty much the same every time. You know, he wins. Or the Simpsons know, goes on, and then it's, just, it's almost <laughs> as if nothing's happened in the previous film. Um, and you know, they move on. I mean, admittedly, the, the Daniel Craig ones sort of built on each other and, and and had throwbacks to to earlier films. But there is that approach of the Simpsons. Yeah, say, so you, know, you clear the palette every week. Familiarity and, and, in repetition and comfort in repetition. But you're you're taking on that challenge. But that that isn't an easy to, thing to do. I mean, I, you've. I mean, I've, I've noticed that. The fifth book's on on pre-order now. So how far do you think you can take it? It's, for me, it was always going to be a case of as far as it would go on its own. You know, um, that's something I've always really hated, especially in kind of, um, in, in TV shows more than anything, is where the... Where they where they're just so determined to ring out that kind of last season that they just phone it in, you know, cough cough Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Where it's just where it becomes fan service, you know. Like you, I think for me, when I get to a point where the ideas stop coming for Jamie, um, and I think she's at you know a place where either it's not going to feel new or it's not going to feel exciting, you know, and it's going to feel recycled. I think. I think I'd rather just stop or at least kind of take a hiatus and a step back, you know. Um, but I'm I'm kind of in this kind of mode of thinking where I like to write in these sort of trilogies where, you know, the first three are set in London and they kind of have a distinct story each, but also have an overarching kind of, you know, uh, storyline that pins them together. And then Angel Maker, Rising Tide and Old Blood do the same thing. And they kind of explore cases on their own but also kind of a saga or a segment of kind of Jamie's life and and for me you know that I feel gives me the opportunity then to kind of not have to think about 12 or 14 or 16 books but say okay what are the next three going to look like and then you know if I have yeah something that's going to define kind of Jamie's life a little bit so you know the first uh, prequel trilogy was her being handed her first murder case then up to her kind of dealing with um, a really traumatic event at the end of it that sort of you know, drew a, a line under her time at the Met. And then the second seri- um, second trilogy, then the Angel Maker trilogy was kind of her being called back to, uh, you know, Stockholm, the city that she'd sort of escaped to kind of confront, you know, issues uh, with her father and his kind of legacy there. And, you know, and, and the third book draws a line under that as well. And then, you know, we move into rural Sweden. And, and I think after this trilogy, you know, I could bring her to Canada or I could kind of send her back to the UK or I could just say, you know, she's moved to some desert island and, I would rather, you know, I would rather do that and say, yeah, Jamie's not going to be around for a bit um, than to kind of just plug her into a, 
you know, a paint by numbers kind of case, you know, just to rack up those pre-orders and just to kind of continue that churn of readers. I would rather, I would rather invest that time and that energy in a new character and a new space and, you know, a new story because I do this, you know, I, I very much enjoy writing. It's, you know, it's my kind of great passion. And, and for me, the idea of kind of creating is what intrinsically I draw that kind of enjoyment from. So if I'm not creating and if I'm just kind of writing, you know, just to please an audience or just to kind of sate an audience. I don't know. That doesn't kind of fit into what I want to do, you know, or, or the kind of sure. thing I want to do, I suppose. And also, if if you're not feeling quite so passionate about it because you're just doing it to satisfy the audience, it there's, you know, there's that risk that the quality will go down because you're not feeling it so much. So, you know, oh, exactly. I agree. Leave on a high, leave them <laughs> begging yeah, for more, but do more, something yeah. different. <laughs> and you and you only have to read kind of reviews for especially books deep into kind of series with with a lot of authors for, for you know the reviews to say yeah this just didn't really feel like you know as good or as punchy or as authentic as the early ones and I would rather I would rather people be kind of clamoring for more and and kind of you know wonder what the next you know Jamie story is going to be and have to wait five years for something really good than to kind of just have something in in two months to consume and and it's such a fine line to walk i think you know especially in the in the indie space where books are expected every kind of three or four months you know versus traditional and it's how do you as an indie live up to that kind of traditional quality and still keep it fresh when you're producing three or four times the amount of work that you know say a traditional author might be that is a very big question isn't it yes we talk about this quite a lot but well i mean i you know we're we're a funny position really being an independent publisher a bit hybrid aren't we we are but i mean we you know we are looking for you know in an ideal world we'd have one of you know and we have signed one or two authors who are prolific um and indeed that's been one of the secrets say behind joffy books where they're Mm -hmm. they're able to you know they're stellar authors the ones that the joy Mm -hmm. ellis's of the world are bringing out fresh books at a regular pace and that's part of their success but at the same time we want to support authors for whom a book every well let's for argument's sake say a year but a book every 18 months perhaps might be their creative pace they don't wish to sort of go any faster than that and the the, the quality would suffer if they did mm. so it is it is a hard thing but from a commercial point of view yeah i mean there is something to be said for quick release it really is it's um it's definitely, you know, if you want, if you want to become an indie, you know, in in this late stage of the game, because you know it's a very mature market, and if you're coming, if you're stepping into what is basically a boxing ring, you know, you're not stepping in with a bunch of other kind of people who've never done it. You're stepping into the ring with not just you know giants of indie publishing, but also giants of traditional publishing now who yeah. made that big leap into the kind of Kindle space um, because it's just so much easier to put Kindle books out and it's the logistic, the cost, the logistic kind of overhead is so much smaller, you know, and it's, it's tough, you know, it's, it's a war, you know, it's, there's no, I, I haven't, you know, every time I I put out a book over the last year, I thought, okay, this is going to be the one after this. Now I'm going to have that cushion. I'm going to be able to take my foot off the gas and I'm going to be able to kind of come down to one every six months and that's going to be fine. And I can just kind of finally look to quit my job and just, I don't see that in my figures. Um, and I think it's very tough to, 
like I, it would frighten the heck out of me to uh, you know to, to quit my job to pursue this full time and put all of my eggs in the kind of the self publishing basket. Um, so it's uh, it's not a I don't think it's a stable world. You know, no matter how successful you are, the the question of how long this road is before it changes and before the market becomes something else entirely, before it kind of has that sudden evolution again, as it has seemingly from kind of that sort of we're happy with one print book a year versus, okay, I'm going to consume fiction en masse on my Kindle. You know, <laughs> I don't know what that next stage is going to be, but we seem to have entered that kind of, you know, consumption stage at the moment. And it's very, uh, it's tricky to navigate, I think, and will continue to become more tricky to navigate as time goes on. Yeah, I think yeah. you're right. I think you're right. I think we're finding that. I mean, that. Ch- changes all the time. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's trying to sort of predict the way things change. It's, well, I mean, you know, you, I, I think it's really interesting the, the the analogy you're using in terms of warfare and, and you know, it's a battle. The boxing, yeah, I like that. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is, it is. And, you know, what I'm interested in, um, and this is something that I'm, I'm interested in all authors, who, you know, particularly like yourself and, and Simon McCleave and Jason Dalglish and you know, the, a number of other authors that we've spoken to have broken through um, in recent months. You know, not the first wave of indies who found that when the kindle came out no one else was making content so they they cashed in mm. it's the you, you know you're the newcomers who are making a splash but how do you do that because strategically um you know there's lots of people take teach teaching methods and all you know ads for authors courses that are open at the moment and all that stuff there's a lot of people there prepared to take quite big money to give advice mm. um but how do you actually make that splash and make that breakthrough yeah make yourself different yeah you know i think it kind of i you know i i made the transition actually before i was writing crime i was writing science fiction for an indie publisher in the u.s and Mm -hmm. and uh and it just so happened that kind of the the by the time we got to the end of the road i still had a book left in kind of contract and he was you know he was very kind of gracious and said look you know i'm like you know we we've We've, we had a really good ride. It didn't kind of work out the way we hoped, but, you know, I'm obligated to kind of, you know, go forward with this. So um, he said, you know, if you want to kind of write a crime book or something, you know, you can basically just have carte blanche to write whatever you want and I'll pay you for that in the way that I was going to pay you to do the kind of the last book in contract. And it was mm. really kind of great opportunity for, for me to sort of, I guess, make a real go of self-publishing without any kind of... Um, necessary risk to myself so yeah. you know he suggested i do uk crime he he was kind of um in contact with a few kind of uk crime authors who were doing quite well and he was saying like look there's you know it's a saturated market but for somebody who can write a lot and you know kind of maintain quality across a series you know he was like there is still money to be made if you are that hungry and it's what you want to do and um so I wrote Bare Skin and then I wrote Fresh Meat and I wrote Idle Hands and I completely bungled it because by the time I actually figured out what the heck I was supposed to be doing and that, you know, you can't write a London set police procedural in, you know, based in the Met if you don't know anything about police procedure or haven't really lived in London, you know, it was a kind of, uh, it was a swing and a miss with that one. So by the time I got to the end of the third book, I, you know, I was looking at these figures and I was still making a loss even with three books out. So it got, it got to a point where, you know, I sort of sat down with my partner and, and, you know, I said like, this is at this rate, if we keep, if I keep going, I keep putting books out in this kind of series. I don't know when that break even point is going to come. And I don't know 
how far down the road making money will come if it ever comes. Um, but it was a real kind of turning point, and it was a question mm. of do do you know do we do we go back in? Do we push in, and, and do we just kind of roll the dice almost, you know, and just see if this kind of starts to turn itself around? Do we try something different? Do we start a new series? And I was just like, well, you know, I don't have any money from the publisher left. You know, it's going to be our own money. And it was, you know, it was a question of, okay, how do I take, you know, all the feedback I've I've had from the first three books? How do I take the, you know, what little momentum I have? How do I take kind of what I've learned from the kind of working on sci-fi? And how do I take the good parts of the books I've already written, remove the bad parts, you know, turn it into something that's exciting and new and feels fresh? And how do I use the kind of the tools available to me? And I, you know, I put Angel Maker together and I, I knew it was a better book. I knew that it had less opportunity to kind of um, trip itself up, I guess is the best way to put that. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, and I just kind of rolled the dice on it and I thought, you know, I'll put this out. If it has a good launch, you know, I'll put the second one up on pre-order. If the pre-order figures are looking good, I'll, you know, I'll write that as well. And honestly, Honestly, you know, the, the thing that took the book from, ah, you know, this could be something, you know, that might work in the long term to, oh, this is making money. People are reading this. People are borrowing this. People are buying this. It was the fact that Amazon uh, picked it up for a, for a Kindle deal. And, um, and, you know, and that's, that's how it went. They, they, are, they took it for a daily deal. And, um, and that spiked the sales for a day. And then they kind of came back and they said, oh, we'd like to feature it for a monthly deal. And they did that. And then that kind of sent the, uh, you know, sent the the borrows up by about 400%. It about doubled the sales, but it sent the borrows up in, in a massive yeah. um, And then just off the back of that, I just thought, okay, you know, this is, this is pretty much, I think, the one and only opportunity I'm going to have. So, yeah, I just doubled down um, and put together uh rising tide and then old blood and have been trying to kind of ride that momentum since and i think it's uh i think it's tough because i know so many authors out there who you know who maybe aren't in a position to kind of gamble with their savings or don't have the kind of you know the liquidity to do that um and they're writing amazing books but the the sad truth is i think that you know amazon just don't really want to feature don't look at kind of authors who aren't spending kind of a lot of money on ads and and that's the biggest kind of shame of all so for me it was a case of i'd already put a lot of money a lot of my own money pretty much everything i had into the series and it just so happened that amazon then were like hey you know let's just take a chance on one day deal and because i was kind of churning money into that deal my ad spend tripled for that day and it was really terrifying because I looked at the end of the night. How much have I spent? We know uh, that feeling. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, and, and, and it kind of gained momentum from there. But now that the kind of the monthly deal and the prime reading featurette that it had as well have tapered off, you know, I'm seeing it to, you know, start to return to that baseline. So I think it's just a case of, you know, I don't. I don't know if there's ever a, a time where you can really be safe. You know, where you think, you know, I'm, I'm okay. So it's, um, so in terms of breaking through, I think it's just a case of trusting your kind of system, putting out books on a regular basis, making sure the books are as good as can be, doing mm. the very best to build your audience, um, and, you know, if you're in a position to do it, 
kind of try and facilitate the kind of that growth and, and scale your ads to the hilt. It's very difficult, as you know, because there's a, a 60 day kind of cooling off period before you get royalties. So if you make royalties in January, you don't get them until the end of March. So yeah. it's very hard to scale, you know, your January ad spend when you know that money's not coming till March and when you're still operating from the royalties you had in November, which, are, you know, if you are scaling is, you know, but but that's how Amazon prevent authors from dumping hundreds of thousands of pounds into a book and then you know sending it to the top of the charts and riding that kind of momentum wave so it's uh yeah it's like i don't i don't i don't really know that there is a an exact kind of science to it i i just think that it's really important for authors who are coming into the space now to to understand that it's actually you know, it, there's there's a lot of luck involved. You know, you've got to write a damn good book. You've got to have a good cover. You've got to have a good blurb. You need to kind of know how to market and social media market and how ads work. But at the end of the day, you know, it comes down to are you willing to spend the money and are you willing to kind of gamble on what you've got? Because I think, you know, it's a calculated gamble, but it's still a gamble. Mm, it is. That's very true. It is. But yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we think that too. There's so many books out there on how to sell your books, how to make mm-hmm. Amazon, do industry. Amazon ads, how to do Facebook ads successfully and blah, 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 how to make your first million or whatever. Yeah. But no two cases are the same. No, definitely not. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's easy. I mean, you know, in the darker times, we have conversations like this. And even a week ago, we were discussing in this time a week ago, we were, we, we know we were looking at the figures and thinking, you know, this really has been very sluggish for a few weeks now. Yeah. Um, December you know, was hard. December, December was a very tough month for, for shifting books. And um, it, you, know, you start to think, you know, is everybody out there in the industry talking about how you do this, a snake oil salesman for, you know, mm. because that's how it feels sometimes. Um, and I think that there are a lot of people, a generation ahead of ourselves, let's say, Hobeck and yourself, uh, who did make, make good money in the early days of Kindle mm. and gave that gave them the war chest to keep them that up, up there. Mm. But it doesn't mean that necessarily their supposition that, you know, you can start off with a five dollar a day budget and you're going to be successful is 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 really, you know, truthful anymore. My kind of partner said to me, she said, you know, what's the, what's the end game? You know, how long can you keep this up? Um, you know, working a job and, and running a business at the same time, you know, how, how long can you keep, you know, writing late into the night and on weekends and, you know, taking 20 minutes here and there to kind of throw down a couple of hundred words just to try and keep up with that release pace. How long can you do that? How, you know, when does it stop? Yeah. And I just said that, you know, in, in this, if you take you know six months off, if you push back a release by three months, there are going to be so many authors who are just keeping to their schedule, who are a few books behind you, or you know they've just had their daily deal and they have got the fire inside them, you know. And and it's you know it's you as much as you're fighting Amazon, you're also fighting everybody else who's trying to realize their dream. And, and every single person who comes to it fresh doesn't think about how saturated the market is. They're just like, oh, well, I've got a couple of hundred pounds. I don't mind losing on ads and I'm going to put out a book and see what happens. And they just make it that much harder for everybody else who is trying to keep their heads above water, I guess. You know, it's mm. it's it's tough. And, and I think until you get to that point where you are such a favorite author of of you know a vast number of readers that 
even if they're looking for another book, even if they know that they're going to buy another book and they're searching Amazon for it, if they're on that book's product page and then your you know, sponsored ad pops up on there and they think, oh, there's a new book out by that author, I haven't read that, and they immediately go and buy your book instead of whatever other book they were looking at. Until you're in that yeah. position and your ads are just converting you know, rock solidly all the time and you can just kind of let them go and not even worry about it because you've you know got such a cushion and such a big audience and such a this. I don't think you can ever kind of stop looking over your shoulder. Part two of Dan's interview will be next week on the Hopcast Book Show. And you'll get to hear his answer to Rebecca's random question. My heart quickens as I hear that. <laughs> I think he was a bit caught off guard with that one. Well... <laughs> You'll find out next week, but we, yeah, but we that, did go around the houses until we actually got mean to the question. It does mean we've denied somebody, you know, our listeners this week haven't had a random I could question. ask you one. Well, go on then. You have to do the drum roll. Uh, well, okay. Rebecca's rather nepotistic <laughs> random question. If you'd been born a girl, what would your name be? Ooh, well, I can always turn it to Adrienne. Um... That's up to my parents, though, isn't it? You know why they called me Adrian? But did they never tell you, you know, oh, if you'd been a girl, you would have been a... No, I don't think so. I'd, I'd never. They've never said. So I've got two sisters. I've got Rachel and Catherine, so they're taken. Um, yeah, Adrian. Adrian. Well, uh, but it's, look, the reason I was called Adrian was because... Um, I think I've, Have I told this story on the podcast? No, I don't, I don't think know. so. All right, it's rather intimate. Anyway, um, let's put it this way. I'll just say it. I was conceived on the banks of the Adriatic. <laughs> And we know that because shortly after the thing happened, whatever it takes to make a baby, a baby Adrian. I'll, I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah, okay. Um, I have no idea. I'm 51. I, no one's told me. I've only got two sons, three with you uh, as well. Well. Uh, <laughs> not obviously mine, but stepsons uh, to be. Uh, they had a car crash on this holiday. And so uh, my mother had a headache for a long period. So as a result <laughs> of that, we know exactly where it was. Um, and it was on the banks of the Adriatic. So when they came to choose a name, they were given a list and they looked up, oh, he of the Adriatic is what Adrian means. That's so sweet. I like that. Now, oh. you see, if I'd been a boy, I would have been a Christopher. Really? Probably because I was born on Christmas Day. Yeah, I like that. I like that. But my mum also wanted to call me Holly. But ah. Holly Collins is, yeah. trips a little on the tongue. It does. It does. I've rather copped out of answering that question. Well, you didn't have an answer, did you? Well, so. if I was called, what would I be? Um, well, it's what they called me. I think I'd be a Phoebe. Yeah, you look like a Phoebe, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, I see that. And yeah. they're also very classical names. And you you are very into the classics. You study classics. Yeah, I did study classics. Yeah. Well, ancient How history. about Medusa? I, I could do that. Or <laughs> Clytemnestra. Yes. Uh, now, you see, I've recently read a really good book about all these... Um, these women of Greek mythology. Yeah, so. Electra. Electra. Electra Hobart. That's good. That's a good name. Well, that makes me think of Alexa. I'll be going, Electra, make me a coffee. <laughs> yeah. And I will. Yeah. Try I think I should make machine. you one. You're in pain. I think... No, don't. I don't, <laughs> I don't want another hot drink for a Aww. bit. Um, he has been suffering really badly, but I'm very impressed with how hard he's worked, despite the pain this week. Yeah. And I think we should reflect and, and celebrate the fact that this week, has been our best week yet. Yes, as we, a business. we've become obsessed with re, uh, refreshing the <laughs> sales data. And it's refreshing that we have um, 
we said it at the beginning of the of this year's podcasts we were going to focus on the figures uh, a lot more than we we did in our sort of in the last five months yeah i suppose a year of, of of building the brand and building the portfolio of authors and you know somewhat prompted by some of them um who who want us to you know clearly get books in front of more readers um but also the fact is that we need the business to to do more than it's doing at the moment um it has picked up quite significantly this week but i mean that part of that is the fact that you know the ads are cheaper at this time of year that can't be you know that there is less competition out there for yeah. people's eyeballs there's various things as the ads are cheaper people are reading more in january than they did in december but we we have got a better balance between production and marketing yes and we're continuing to make great effort you know it is a um i think it's probably the number one thing we concentrate on each day now it certainly is far more of a conversation that we have and action points and things that we've been trying yeah since then and we've got lots of things up our sleeves so um you know fingers crossed but as we've heard from a number of sources and if you go back to the self-publishing show and listen to the jasper joffe interview of december he will readily say that the marketplace in terms of advertising is much much tougher than it was seven years ago and that it's very hard to get a decent return and investment on the money you spend on ads mm. and it appears that what they're doing is spending a lot of money to get books to the top 100 top 10 and selling the rights to a successful book and mm -hmm. that is where the money is now yeah and it, you know i can see that um being a, a decent strategy i mean you know they are making you know breaking even on the money on the on the books perhaps but making the money on the rights so things for us to consider yeah um, i had so many things to think about after listening to that i would recommend it to anyone who's interested um it was december the 17th episode of the self-publishing show really really good yeah absolutely so lots for us to to consider but basically it's been a very positive week um and uh i have completed the uh initial recording of waking the tiger by mike whiteman we've also got a new audiobook coming out this week which we is Catcher's do. Catch Can yes. by Malcolm Hollingdrake. It's out on the 25th. So that's very exciting. Which is great. And uh, I'll play a snippet of it maybe next week. Do you know how many audio books we have now, though, with that as well? I think it's... Something like nine now. Seven, oh, right, as many as that. Yeah, I can... Well, you, you take off your fingers and I'll go through the list. The Rock by Robert Dawes. We have um, The uh, Overdead Body and also... Old, old dogs, dogs old, tri old tricks, with uh, Alison Morgan. We have blood, uh, no, a uh, blood loss, which is uh, by Karina Swan. Daria's daughter, by Linda Huber, is out already, which is terrific. What? Just clue to the next one. Sleeping dogs, <laughs> Wendy Turbin, now available on Audible after getting stuck in their system for for months and months and months and months and months. <laughs> So that's there. Uh, Judy Dakin narrating that one. What was that supposed to sound? A comet. Oh, uh, the Genesis Inquiry, recently out uh, with Ollie Jarvis and um, the library lenders of, of America are loving it at the moment. So we're on seven now. I uh, think Catch's Catch Can is... Is eight? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, and then Waking the Tiger will be out in about a month's time. So, yeah, so you're kind of right because you have narrated nine well not you've you know we've as a, as a company we've worked on nine books they're just not all out so so once that one's finished then i've got a 
you know, working out a list of the things. Now, one of the challenges I've got is that I promised Harry Fisher that I would start working on uh, Be Sure Your Sins and Way Beyond a Lie. Um, I will also be finishing the, the second book of the Merseyside Crime series, Sin, as well. And it's one or two other things. But I've got to master some East Coast Scottish accents. And so this week I bought a book which uh, is the the guide, the, the Bible for doing Scottish accents. But I've also found myself, and I'm waiting for a slot with this particular person, uh, a, a fantastic dialect coach based in Glasgow who can teach me these different accents as well because <laughs> I really want to get them right. And um, it's all part of the toolkit as well because the more accents I can master, uh, the better. And I've always had a good gift for mimicry, but... Um, it's that's mimicking something is one thing inhabiting the voice manners and the character of a character quite natively well you're doing it at the same time aren't you you get in the accent and the character so yeah uh, that's a lot more thinking you have to do Mm -hmm. but i've really enjoyed this week because i I, i've you know been putting in significant hours in the studio but it's flowed and it's been really fun despite the pain despite the pain i took a couple (laughs) of days off to allow the tooth to settle down a bit. Um, but the stitches come out tomorrow. So anyway, a lot of things to wince about this week. Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, and wince was one of the wordles. Yeah, oh, this new obsession of yours. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll go into that next week, shall we? Okay, well... Let's just say he's just discovered wordle yeah. and, it, and it wasn't pretty. No, it wasn't. It's not. My brain doesn't think like that. <laughs> but it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and it was a pleasure to speak to Dan Morgan. So good, in fact, we're going to speak to him again next week. Excellent. When we bring back the Hobcast Books show. Now, please don't forget to visit our website, www.hobeck.net, uh, for all sorts of details. And uh, we've got, uh, you know, obviously our recent announcement of a new author in Jonathan Peace. We've got... Uh, uh, in the pipeline. In the pipeline. They're, they're not very comfortable in the pipeline. No, they're not. They're <laughs> not. But that, we're making progress with uh, with adding to our strong, wonderful stable of authors. And uh, the other thing to, to mention there is if you want to discuss about those audiobooks, you can go and get them at a discount rate at our own we- um, storefront. So that is a link you can get from hobeck.net and uh, get those, those audiobooks uh, at a knockdown price. Not quite knocked down, but certainly cheaper than yeah, you get it anywhere than... else, um, which uh, we're very proud of. And then there's uh, also the little thing, a little challenge for you. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do so. It makes such a difference to the impact that we can have. And uh, we'd really appreciate it. We, we love would. your company. We thank you very much. We had a fabulous email this week, didn't we, from um, from somebody who said, you know, Can you remember? um, Can you pre-see what they said? What did she say? She said it was one of our advanced readers and she said, what sort of magic dust do you sprinkle at Hobeck Towers? Because all your books are uh, absolute corkers, I think was the Mm. wording. Mm. And I read that and I thought that has has made my month. (laughs) Yeah. Because yeah. to make somebody want to say that and to, you know... Take be the trouble to contact us. ...intrigued, that, what, what are you doing to get these great books? Uh, yeah, so Sometimes thank- we wonder the same thing. <laughs> but we're very grateful that our authors have faith in us and we want to reward that faith. But yes. joining our podcast is another way you can do that. So thank you for your company. Uh, from myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thank you for joining us. And uh, as usual, we wish you a wonderful and very creative week. Bye-bye.
You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.